This is an ABC podcast. The first blast was inside the cathedral as worshippers celebrated Sunday Mass. That was followed by a second explosion in the car park as security forces were arriving. They are trying to disrupt the peace process. They're trying to Last Sunday's bombing of a Catholic cathedral in the southern Philippines, just days after voters had approved self-governance for Muslim-dominated parts of the region, demonstrated a number of things. The frightening reach of Islamic State ideology as it spreads its tentacles into Southeast Asia, the fragility of political deals and peace processes, and more broadly, the dangerous instability that results when religious radicalism meets secular democracy. This is The Philosopher's Zone on RN. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to the program. When religion meets politics, the result is often depicted as an adversarial clash. Secularists in one corner demanding that religion should be kept as far away from the public sphere as possible, and religious adherents in the other corner demanding that their voices should be heard as clearly and loudly as possible. But the encounter between religion and politics is rarely that simple. And today we're looking at that encounter in the Philippines, not focusing on Islam, but exploring religious language and the ways in which Christianity is playing its role in destabilising the values of secular democracy. And our guide to this particular labyrinth is a Filipino philosopher. My name is Tracy Lianera. I'm an assistant research professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut. I work in the areas of philosophy of religion, social and political philosophy, and American pragmatism. And it's with that American pragmatism that we're going to begin. In particular, with the figure of Richard Rorty, the great 20th century American neo-pragmatist who had his suspicions about religious language in public life, but he wasn't entirely anti. I guess it's important to start by saying that Rorty is a pragmatist and he self-describes as a thinker who prioritizes politics over philosophy. So he appreciates the practical force that a religious language wields in inspiring um, political commitment. And he's biased when it's in favor of the social and political framework he endorses, and that's liberal democracy. So, for instance, he thinks that the New Testament um, continues to illuminate a vision of of human freedom and equality. He even goes as far as comparing it to the Communist Manifesto. He thinks that some democratic statements are buttressed by religious language effectively. So Walt Whitman's Americans, John Keats's grand democracy of forest trees. Um, According to Rorty, these statements can be read as epiphanies of utopian social democratic thought. He also recognizes the importance of casting secular ideals in religious terms. So terms like human dignity, social justice, he thinks they may work best for us when we treat them as universal and inviolable priorities in social policy. But that's as far as Rorty goes when it comes to the good we get in religious language. Most of the time, he is critical of it in human practice. He even sees it as an enemy of politics in good conversation about public issues. In what ways? Why does he harbour these suspicions? Um, So Rorty is infamous for saying that religion is a conversation stopper in a sense that it invokes what he calls inarguable first principles in public discourse. Moreover, religious language is socially enforced. Um, The clerical hierarchy sometimes authorizes 
godly courses of action. And if their believers don't follow, they might be intimidated and ostracized by their religious community. For instance, members of Christian evangelical groups in the United States today have experienced strong backlash for supporting same-sex marriage or criticizing Donald Trump. Hmm. Yeah, so I take your point, or I take Rorty's point about the uh, conversation-stopping um, mm-hmm. nature of religious language or the way it, it shuts down reason and argument. And of course, as a good pragmatist, Rorty believes that we need to get along without unarguable first principles. But then if we understand something like human dignity or social justice as universal and transcendent ideals, doesn't that make them conversation stoppers as well? Do we see them in a sort of a quasi-religious light? So that's a great point. I think it nails the ambivalence and the tension in Rorty's work perfectly. Uh, Rorty seems to reject religious conversation stoppers wholesale, but then he's happy to appropriate them when they are useful in liberal democracy. If he could theoretically skin off the transcendent flavor of these religious concepts, but keep their moral inspiration, he would do that. Um, In response to a critic, Rorty actually relents at some point, and he admits that a person should be able to endorse, for instance, uh, redistributionist social legislation on the basis of Psalm 72, which commands that the cause of the poor should be defended. He should be able to do this in much the same way that Rorty can cite passages in John Stuart Mill. Um, There's no problem with the religious language, it seems, when it supports social policies that are morally desirable. Well, he makes use of a category that he calls authoritarian languages. So what are these? What are the characteristics of of authoritarian languages, according to his view? So according to Rorty's view, um, authoritarian languages share three features. First, they tend to rely on transcendental support. Um, transcendent claims are designed to override all other claims. He thinks that religion, philosophy, and science are disciplinary areas that are prone to formulating these kinds of languages. So if you hear the statement, it's the true religion, or you have to believe this because this is objective science, that usually indicates trouble. That indicates a conversation-stopping mechanism that's operative in the statement. Second, he thinks that authoritarian languages tend to dominate interpretation. And then finally, authoritarian languages conflict with other languages. So if you play the transcendental language game of Aquinas, which finds its home in the divine command theory, it wouldn't make much sense in the language game of enlightenment ethics. Maybe they sound uncontroversial when analyzed in terms of philosophical theory. Maybe they're just controversial to philosophers. But for Rorty, what makes authoritarian languages dangerous is that they carry a notion of redemptive truth. So for Rorty, redemptive truths are systems of essentialist beliefs, which users treat as ultimate and final. They present the opportunity to end once and for all our process of reflection. So he gives, for instance, God as the first redemptive truth in the West. In time, we find other God surrogates, such as science, materialist metaphysics, essentialist theories of Marxism and humanism as examples of these redemptive truths. So the problem here is that authoritarian languages, when they espouse these redemptive truths, become epistemically and existentially valuable to users to the point that they dominate the way they make sense of the world and give meaning to their way of lives. They become so invested in this vocabulary that 
they're willing to die in order to defend its authority when under threat. It's interesting you mentioned science there or appeals mm-hmm. to objective science as being part of this authoritarian language game. I mean, what, what kind of science is not objective? What kind of scientific discourse doesn't fall into an authoritarian language uh, pattern? So he adopts the um, framework of Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. So he thinks that science is at its best when it's able to shift from one framework to another as a result of a new discovery or a new way of meaning making or a new way of understanding things. So there's this scientific ethos that's constantly evolving and um, progressing that Rorty celebrates. And there's a danger, he thinks, that when particular sciences purport that that's the end of it, we've achieved what we want to achieve. We've, we're able to mirror reality as it really is at the very core. It's interesting to hear you and, and Rorty talk about this in terms of languages, because usually when we think of dangerous fanaticism, we think of it in terms of people being prepared to, uh, to die for beliefs or ideals. But mm. this is languages, this is vocabularies we're talking about. Um, Yeah, um, I think what Rorty brings into the picture is precisely um, the Wittgensteinian view that language actually substantiates and helps conceptualize these particular goals, these particular actions and activities. So to some extent, it actually undergirds activities of fanaticism from you know, a very primal level so that we actually need to be very cautious and very observant of the kind of language that fanatics use in articulating their belief systems. Rorty also sees religious language as authoritarian uh, in this way and as being incompatible with democratic practice. In what ways does he, does he single out religious language for this sort of charge? So religious language is his favorite. Um, in terms of criticizing its authoritarian nature. Um, Religious language for him uses transcendent claims. So claims issued by an infallible God or the authority and coherence of a divine framework to back up its beliefs and practices. So these transcendent claims are clear and reasonable within the language game of religion. But if a claim fails to be seen as self-evident or reasonable, um, that is when this claim is introduced in a secular framework, then the user defers or falls back on the authority of religion for defense. So, he thinks that religious language often conflicts with the language of inclusive politics. When a person ends her reasoning process with God said so, and so it is, it really makes considering the rights and desires of whom religious people see as deviant, such as homosexuals, ex-offenders, or atheists, harder to do. Yeah, you also point out that religious language overrides the claims of competing languages, if we think in terms of moral languages or or legal or political discourses, that religious language um, sort of trumps them. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's correct. So, at the end of the day, Rorty suspects that if a religious language user fails to make her argument using moral or legal language, the final arbiter, the final framework that would dictate her decision would be religious language and he finds that deeply troubling. 
But of course, American society is highly religious, so there's a sense in which Rorty's views on religious language um, sort of run against the grain. So when he calls for, as he does, a, a secular democratic polity in the US, does he see this as something that could be realised or is it more of an ideal for him? A lot of his critics have really pointed this out, that this is a mistake for Rorty to even introduce this um, idea because it just seems practically impossible. As a rejoinder, Rorty just admits that his secularist political agenda is infeasible, given the religious culture of the United States. But this is only a short-term compromise for him, since there is something to be won in pursuing what he calls a long-term militantly secularist philosophical agenda. So overall, he stands by his argument that politics just works better when we take religious propositions for granted in the process of deliberating law and social policy. You're with The Philosopher's Zone on RN. I'm David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Filipino philosopher Tracy Lanera from the University of Connecticut. And I should probably mention that Tracy did her PhD at our very own Macquarie University in Sydney. We're talking about religious language and the ways in which it can muddy the waters of secular democracy, which is exactly what it's doing right now in the Philippines. What are your sins? Ako? Sabi ko sa military, anong, anong kasalanan ko? Nagnakaw ba ako dyan? Nipiso? Tignan. Did I prosecute somebody na pinapinakulong ko? Ang kasalanan ko lang, yung mga extrajudicial killing. The President of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, making with the religious rhetoric in September last year. He's saying, what are my sins? Have I stolen even one peso? My only sin has been extrajudicial killings. And that's an eyebrow-raising admission, given that there's a growing international effort to have Duterte indicted for crimes against humanity. The Duterte presidency has been marked by state-sanctioned violence, much of it the result of his declared war on drugs. He's encouraged members of the public to kill drug users and drug dealers, and there's overwhelming evidence that police have been routinely executing unarmed drug suspects. The body count lies somewhere between the government's figure of 4,200 and the opposition's figure of more than 27,000, and the victims have included at least 54 children, none of which seems to be hurting his popularity with the general public. The last survey in September 2017 indicated support for the drug war running at 88%. Well, Tracy Lanera is fascinated by the way in which this shift in the landscape of public life in the Philippines has been accompanied by a shift in public language, much of it religious, and much of it coming from the mouths of militant pro-Duterte Christian leaders. Emerging research in Philippine studies reflects shifts in language use under Duterte's rule. A key example is the president's employment of strong and provocative gutter language, touted as an effective masa or common people strategy. Um, gutter language, you say? Yes, yeah. that's correct. So pretty much reminiscent of what we think of when... Donald Trump, for instance, when the supporters of Donald Trump say, like, he says it as it really is. So <laughs> there's yeah. that particular ethos in um, Duterte's presidency as well. Um, so the vocabulary is called Dutertismo. Um, and one um, Filipino scholar, Randolph David, puts it as P 
pure theater. It's a sensual experience rather than a rational application of ideas to society's problems. So in my work, I focus on religious language use in the Philippines. And the Philippines is no danger to co-opting religious language to justify its politics. So for instance, Bible verses regularly pepper the political speeches of our world boxing champion come Senator Manny Pacquiao. Um, with topics ranging from his opposition of homosexuality to his support of Duterte's regime. Duterte has also used messianic discourse to frame his political relevance. Before the 2016 elections, he proclaimed that if only to save this country, he will run for president. So... In my research, I'm interested in how militant Christian leaders are using religious language to justify Duterte's politics. I rely a lot on the unpublished sociological research of J.L. Cornelio and Kier Elias Medina, and their work reveals that militant Christian groups are using religious language to support Duterte's politics. And in my recent work, I argue that this reconciliatory use of religious language creates pernicious harm. This harm is much more complex than the overt kind that Rorty describes when he criticizes the conversation-stopping mechanism at work in religious language. And, and who are these militant Christian groups? In, in what ways do they display their militancy? Um, so Christian groups in the Philippines are militant in four senses. So they're militant intellectually, sharing a literalist view of the Bible, using scripture as their primary basis of justification. They adopt a fundamentalist outlook towards issues like divorce, same-sex marriage, and abortion. They're also spiritually militant. Um, Iglesia ni Cristo, ang dating daan, and the kingdom of Jesus Christ all follow a restorationist theology, framing their movements as the authentic form of Christianity. They're also militant politically. So groups such as Jesus is Lord has like it has fielded political candidates. Finally, these Christian groups are militant institutionally. They follow a top-down hierarchy. So whatever their leaders declare as the right course of action, their followers usually obey. And I'm interested to note that you don't mention the Catholic Church there, which, um, of course, this was the, the church was instrumental in toppling the Marcos regime. It has the, mm-hmm. the nominal allegiance of 80% of the population in the Philippines. So to what extent is the Catholic Church a force for um, maybe pushing back against these very um, right-wing militant Christian groups and um, speaking up for social justice and democracy in the Philippines today? So that's a great point. I mean, in comparison to these younger and smaller militant Christian groups, the Catholic Church remains a giant civil society player in the Philippines. However, um, it would be a mistake to think that the mandate of the Catholic Church over its 74 million followers is as overarching um, and as all-encompassing compared to the social power that militant Christian groups have over its devout members. Um, presently, the Catholic Church has come under fire for three reasons. So first, it's facing credibility issues due to corruption, sexual misconduct, and political collusion. Second, Duterte has been attacking the Catholic Church in response to its critique of his regime. And third, many Filipinos are unhappy with the church's involvement in politics, calling for the separation between church and state. So the weakened authority of the Catholic Church has opened the doors for these various militant Christian groups to stake their evangelizing claim in public discourse. And is the involvement of the smaller militant Christian groups in politics, is that 
in any way um, unpopular or does that come under the same sort of criticism as the Catholic Church? Not at all. Um, and the reason for this is that the perception is that these groups do not have as much public authority as the Catholic Church. So to some extent, one could argue that they have had the freedom to thrive in the Duterte's regime. Well, of course, one huge plank of um, Duterte's popular support has been the uh, success, quote-unquote, uh, that he's having in the war on drugs. <laughs> in what ways do we see these militant Christian groups or the language of these militant Christian groups mm. supporting Duterte in that war on drugs and how influential are they in shaping social attitudes? This is new research, um, Cornelio and his team um, recently conducted interviews in Bayatas, which is one of the poorest urban communities in Metro Manila. In 2017, um, 65 individuals were killed during the anti-drug operations. So they, as a response, they interviewed religious leaders from different groups. Um, these included Catholic priests, evangelical pastors, a charismatic leader, a Baptist preacher, and lay leaders from an evangelical church in basic ecclesial community. And I'm going to cite three interrelated cases of religious language used by militant Christian leaders, which I think are worth examining a bit further. So the first one is that some of them interpret Duterte's government as part of divine, God's divine judgment. Um, according to a Baptist pastor, um, he says that God needed to appoint Duterte in order to get Filipinos to repent. Second, militant Christian leaders also frame the war on drugs as a spiritual problem. Nick, an evangelical pastor, thinks that the primary task of the church is to remind all people to go back to how God has designed them. And finally, militant Christian leaders describe drug users as sinners instead of victims. One of them, Pastor Nick, says... And I quote him at length, It is God's design that there is law and order in society. For example, we prohibit jaywalking because we don't want anyone to die because of accidents. If you are law-abiding, you will be safe from any of these accidents. And you have to realize that the law of the land is God's anointing. There is no law on earth meant to harm people. You look for one that hurts people. You will not find any. Never. End of quote. So what's interesting in the Philippine Payatas case is that these transcendent claims are not used to combat a controversial social policy or to defend a religious view from secular interests, um, the problems that Rorty militates against in his work. Rather, these transcendent claims are used to justify and empower state-sponsored violence and murder. Now, to highlight what's insidious about this language, about this pro-Duterte religious language, in my work, I frame the word sinner, which is a regular trope in religion, as an emotive term in the Philippine drug war. So in my work, I argue that a language user will adopt a different set of practices and responses if the emotive power of the sinner concept kicks in in one's reasoning mechanism. So indeed, Cornelio himself points out that religious leaders in the drug war respond differently depending on whether they see the drug user as a victim or a sinner. So he says that if a person is seen as a victim of larger social forces, such as poverty, the intervention of the church is more political and legal. But if the drug addict is primarily characterized as a sinful being, then the response of the church is largely concerned with the person's spiritual salvation. 
if drug users are framed as victims, then the view that they are not entirely to blame for their addiction remains salient in public discourse. But the narco-politics story becomes brutally narrow when the drug user is conceptualized as a sinner. So according to one of the Baptist pastors, um, Duterte was ordained by God to teach the country a lesson. And for militant Christians, policies and institutions are already just and ethical. So that culpability rests entirely on persons who transgress religious and social law. Some religious leaders have in fact taken steps to support the drug war. For instance, an evangelical pastor has actively worked with the police and local community officials to identify and locate drug users. And these house visits are often fatal. Um, having resulted to thousands of arrests and deaths without due process. And this is an evangelical pastor helping the death squads, if you want to call them that, to locate the sinners. Exactly. And one could argue that he found theological reasoning as the foundation for this kind of action more than anything else. What really interests me here is that Duterte himself has described his own policies of extrajudicial killings as a sin. So what does that tell you about his own ideas towards his own responsibilities? What that tells me is that he's actually very smart because he recognizes the power of religious language, whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, given the legal and political context of his admission of state-sponsored violence, it seems that it's more appropriate to describe his offense as a crime but he's deliberate in using the word sin because sin suggests that he's accountable to God that God alone can judge him that he deserves to be cross-examined in a religious tribunal and not a political one so we can interpret Duterte's use of sin as a curious but unsurprising move in light of his attempts to evade the clutches of the international criminal court What's your view? Are, are you with Rorty? Do you believe that we should treat all use of religious language in the public sphere as pernicious? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, I think that it is an arrow way of thinking, to be honest. Um, because I think silencing religious language also means we stand to lose the good that comes with it um, in terms of combating injustices. Of course, Rorty would stake his claim that banning religion in politics is the way to go. In fact, he argues that, quoting him, Ecclesiastical organizations have sometimes been on the right side, but he thinks that the occasional Gustavo Gutierrez or Martin Luther King does not compensate for the ubiquitous Joseph Ratzinger's and Jerry Falwell's. History suggests that such organizations will always, on the balance, do more harm than good. But I don't think it's that easy to weigh the good and the bad. Um, this seems to be such a disservice to Gutierrez and King, whose legacies in liberation theology and the American civil rights movement are monumental and remain relevant today. So Rorty's contentious view of history and religion naturally remains up for debate. Tracy Lanera. She's an assistant research professor at the University of Connecticut and throwing it out there, up for debate. Balls in your court, listeners. If you'd like to continue the debate, then feel free to get on the website and leave us a comment. You'll find us at the ABC RN website. Just look for the Philosopher's Zone on the program menu. And if you'd like to download the program or subscribe to the podcast, then head to the ABC Listen app or any podcasting app that you happen to use. Thanks to our producer, Diane Dean, and I'm David Rutledge. See you next time. 
Thank you.